ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Cool. We'll have one of them as well. And drinks. Thank you. Did you know, right, that Freud actually spent a summer when he was a young man dissecting eels to look for their dicks? So you're saying that psychology would be different without eels? <laughs> Probably would. Maybe that's where it all started for him. Yeah, what, would, what would Freud say about Freud? What would Freud say about that? Hello, I'm Ann Jones, and this is What the Duck, where I am going to face the ick factor head on. Eels. I didn't intend to study eels at all. John Wyatt Greenlee, one-time professional volleyball coach, is now a historian who initially wanted to study maps. I was looking at maps of London from the 17th century around the Great Fire for reasons unrelated to eels. And there are, on a number of these maps, there are several ships anchored in the middle of the Thames labeled eel ships. And I wondered why they were there. And everything else on these maps that had a label was uh, a big civic monument like St. Paul's or the Globe. So why a moving object could get included on a really important thing like a map was a big question. And then it turned out more sort of questions I asked of it, the more questions I had. And then at one point I, I sort of looked up from my work and I realized that I had stopped working on maps. And that's why John Wyatt Greenlee, PhD, calls himself Surprised Eel Historian on Twitter. So in sort of pre-Norman England, so before the Norman Conquest in 1066. He's not talking about Jerry Harvey's dominance of the retail landscape here. He's talking about the last full conquest of Britain by William, the Duke of Normandy. There's not a lot of hard currency available in England, so most rents are paid in kind. And it turns out that eels are the most common in-kind rent in pre-Norman England. Yes, paying your rent in eels. This would make negative gearing and becoming a rental slumlord less appealing. At the turn of the 12th century, there are about at least 540,000 eels being paid in rent in England every year. And the number is higher than that. I know it's higher than that, I just don't have evidence. Are we talking like wild-caught eels? Are we talking aquaculture? What's going on? Right. So they are all wild caught. Eels have this really fascinating life cycle where they are born out at sea and they come to land and they spend most of their lives sort of inland in lakes and streams and ponds and things. And then they go back out to sea to mate and die. And so there's no raising them in captivity. The European eels will only breed in the Sargasso Sea. So these are almost all wild caught eels. The rent eels are almost all caught in the fall. They are mostly salted and then smoked. And the salting and smoking takes several months. And then they're mostly paid to landlords in the spring and very often at the start of Lent, when monasteries and other landlords are not supposed to eat meat. Okay. Eels are a particularly good fish to eat during Lent and other holidays because the medieval conception of eels is that they are asexual. Oh, come on. They are literally shaped like a trouser eel. People from Aristotle on down have dissected eels looking for their reproductive organs without success. The idea that he came to was that he figured that they sprang out of the mud and uh, that they grew a little bit like plants. And curiously, he didn't seem to make the connection between elvers coming upstream and adult eels going downstream. Elvers being the name for adolescent eels. 
Then there was Pliny the Elder, a Renaissance man before the Renaissance was invented, a naturalist, a naval commander, a friend to emperors, a prolific author, and he didn't have any idea about the reality of eel procreation either. He thought that they sort of scraped themselves on rocks and you get little flakes of skin that come off and those flakes grow into new eels. Um, there's a lot of guesswork, frankly. There's uh, in... In England, there's a uh, there's a sort of folk belief that horse hair that drops off a horse into the water turns into eels, and all the way up through Sigmund Freud. He spent part of his uh, as a summer when he was, was just out of college, basically uh, in Italy, dissecting eels, looking for the reproductive organs, uh, without success. And then he he went on to think about other kinds of reproductive organs, but he started out with eels. <laughs> Freud spent formative years looking for eel. D- I mean... Anyway, back to medieval times, when they thought that the eel was asexual. They reproduce somehow spontaneously. Um, And so this makes them great fish to eat during fish days and when you're not supposed to be thinking about carnal things at all. Yeah, not carnal at all. They're sort of completely divorced from issues of sex, which is just exactly what you want during Lent. Historically, eels have made up somewhere between 25 and 50 percent of the fish biomass in the downstream sections of rivers in North America and Europe, the ones that rivers that empty into the Atlantic. So they've traditionally and historically been just an enormous part of the, the ecosystem. And to give you a sense of scale here, in the last 40 or 50 years, the European eel has seen a population crash of 90 to 95 percent. There are still as a critically endangered species, there are about a billion of them that come ashore in Europe every year. So when you project backwards, you say, okay, well, we're talking a 95% reduction rate. So we're talking like 90 billion eels, 95 billion eels a year coming ashore. The eel was an incredibly important part of European, and in this case, British history. British heraldry still has noble eels in it. Tapestries feature majestic eels, church murals, eels, texts that are richly illustrated, eels, St Christopher carrying Christ across the sea, eels swirling at his feet. Eels in medieval Europe were much less ick and much more in. In the Doomsday Book, which is sort of like the first census of Britain, the biggest rent was a payment of about 73 thousand eels. That's a lot of eels to count. They are generally measured in units of 25, and a a unit of 25 eels is called a stick, and sometimes if you've got a lot of those, there's a larger unit called a bind, which is 10 sticks, so 250 eels. And 25 eels on a stick, there's some debate about where the term comes from, but my best guess is that If you are drying and smoking eels, 25 eels is about where you can get on sort of a pole before the pole starts to get too heavy and bend. As in literally, you know, thread the eels by piercing them through the head and dangling them on sticks in a smoke room and then wrapping them up into a bind to be given to the real estate agent on rent day. All right, we get it. Europe has a whole set of fantastical history about eels being traded and travelling, and the eels have remained important. But you know what? We can do better. Because right here on Gunijmara country in Western Victoria, there are people whose ancestors have been doing all of that, but for thousands of years. I'm Erin Rose. I'm the Budgebin World Heritage Executive Officer at Gunijmara. Oh, woman of power. I love that. <laughs> So how would you describe this landscape that we're sitting in? 
Oh, it's it still feels surreal sometimes. I think um, what we've able to achieve over time is pretty magical. It's a beautiful landscape that's really important for Gunditjmara to um, be able to live, work, um, visit, and and just come and connect with. It's just beautiful. Mm. And immediately in front of us, there's this beautiful lake and wetlands. There's trees off in the distance. I can see a little bit of a mountain. And that mountain is Budgebim National Park. That mountain appears to poke out above the landscape like someone pushed a cube of rock up from below. And in fact, the whole story of this place starts because of that mountain, but way back, like 46,000 years back. Braden Saunders is a Budgebim cultural landscape tourism team leader. From our point of view, we tell the story of a volcano erupting and not yet interpreting it to be a volcano. We believed it was a creator being, a spirit being um, that may have been angry at us. And so, yeah, his blood and his teeth came out across the landscape and changed the world. With the eruption of Budgebim 46,000 years ago. Tyson Lovett-Murray is a World Heritage Park Ranger. The lava flow it blocked all the natural drainage patterns of the country and created all these wetlands. And it took thousands and thousands of years for us to um, adapt to the new landscape that Budgebim had recreated for us. More than adapt, the Gunijmara people learned how to thrive on the lava flows. The Gunijmara community, which constructed these, uh, well, what's framed as the world's oldest and largest aquaculture, uh, dated at 6,600 years old. Currently there's about 350 recorded stone houses on the site. There's 150 recorded stone structures that are either like, channels cut into the bedrock or walls that have been built for weirs and dams. There's about 1.8 kilometres of channels cut into the bedrock made to divert water from these wetlands into these sort of naturally forming sinkholes on the lava flows. It's no small task what Tyson is describing. The work that occurred must have been done over probably generations. We're talking about cutting channels into solid rock. Definitely a lot of backbreaking work, you know, with the, the cutting of the channels, you know. There's, there's about four channels that are over 100 metres long. They range at different depths and, and widths as well. You know, but there are, they can be up to a metre and a half deep, metre oh, and a half wide. That is a lot of water. When they cut these channels into the stones, they diverted water from a wetland into uh, a big depression inside the, the stone country and, and formed these two large lakes. They made lakes. If they want the lake to fill up, you know, slow, they'll open those channels and, and flood that naturally dry area, or they'll keep it closed and let the lake fill up quicker. Reaping rewards of an ancient volcano and the work of generations before them, the Gunijmara controlled the flow of water through the landscape. They mastered hydrology. Actually, scrap that. They mastered hydrology because of eels. Kuyang. Kuyang. is the name for our eels. So, yeah, yeah that's uh, the name for any eel that you catch in the fresh water. It's Kuyang. Our oldest fish trap system has been dated at 6,600 years. Yeah, these man-made structures are older than the pyramids, are older than the Stonehenge, and eels, obviously, back then, would have been an important commodity. They're quite oily, they're quite nutrient-rich, and so the, the mob wanted to savour the fact that they had so many eels on hand, and they were able to do that by creating 
fish trap systems along the edge of Lake Conda here, Tayrak, where we're sitting, and also stretching right from here down to the coast. They were able to manipulate the movement of water and therefore control the movement of eels. And that was important because the longer you could make eels last in a certain spot, one, they'll clean up the area quite well, they're, they're natural cleaners of water systems, but two, they're tasty and uh, they became a, a good commodity for that exact reason. So we smoked eels, uh, made the meat last longer, and then we were able to trade with it from there and uh, get commodities from other mobs that didn't have eel. So they weren't paying rent with them, but they were using them to trade. And it seems that historically, when you're rich in eels, you're rich, full stop, which slight detour back to the Northern Hemisphere again, meant that eels made some people very, very wealthy indeed. Remember how the medievalist John Wyatt Greenlee was looking at maps of London and saw eel ships listed as if they were a regular fixture? Well, time to get your captain's hat on for the international eel trade. Part of this is speculation on my part. The best stories start like that. But starting at the beginning of the 14th century, you get the Little Ice Age. And England, and real cooling off. And eels are a subtropical fish. They don't particularly care for cold weather. When they, they migrate to wherever they're going, they'll hang out in, in estuaries and wait until the water coming downstream becomes warm enough for them to be okay with going upstream. I think part of what happens here is England gets colder and loses some of their eels, is my guess. Uh-oh, what you're going to eat during Lent. So at the same time, one of the things that's been happening in, in Holland is the Dutch have uh, significant peat bed resources. They wind up creating massive inland swamps and lakes out of sort of the holes they've left from, from the peat mining. In so doing, um, develop a really fantastic eel habitat. The Dutch controlled all these wetlands by levees and weirs. Sounding familiar? So when you get to the Black Death, a lot of this infrastructure gets abandoned. And it gets bought up on the cheap by series of merchant families. And so they wind up with sort of control over all of this infrastructure for maintaining lakes and things. That also means they wind up having control over a massive population of eels and a system for catching them. Ah, a yoldy hostile takeover. Still happens today. And because they were already merchants, they knew how to find a customer. So they start exporting barrels full of salted, smoked eels to Britain. Somewhere in the early to mid-15th century, they start adopting these sort of well ships. So they're ships with a, with a big hold that's full of water. And they, they realize that they can put the eels in the hold, and you put small holes in through the hull of the ship to let water flow through, and you basically got a giant aquarium. And so they realize that they can put the live eels in these ships and transport them across the English Channel and up the Thames to London. This is very early live export stuff. But over the next century or so, the Dutch essentially develop a monopoly on the eel trade in London. And this is true up through 1938. Yep, he said 1938. The Dutch ran live eels to Britain throughout Elizabethan times, through the turn to Protestantism, through World War One, for God's sakes. So these ships stay on the Thames, and it's essentially the same ship. They add engines in the last 50 years or so, but essentially the same ships from 1450 or so through 1938. And they're essentially medieval. You're looking at the medieval eel trade that's just sort of carried over it. And if you think that all this big 
eel businesses in the past. In February this year, six people were arrested in Brussels with eels wrapped in foil in their luggage, estimated to be something like 400,000 euros worth of eels. John says the international black market for eels these days is worth something like 4 billion euros a year. Yeah, I said billions. So where there are eels, there is wealth. But if that's true then, why do we know so little about eels? Short fin eels are the ones I'm actually talking about now, the ones that you might find at Budgebim in Western Victoria. What we do know is that they're spawned somewhere in the western part of the South Pacific and they travel southwards as absolutely see-through tiny little glass eels. They're only a couple of centimetres, they're transparent. Wayne Costa is a research scientist with the Arthur Ryler Institute. Some people describe them as a transparent willow leaf and they'll drift on, on those ocean currents for months and months. They travel down the east coast eating marine snow, which is all the tiny bits of debris floating around in the ocean. The youngest stage is what we typically call a glass eel, and then when they enter freshwater environments and start feeding and start developing colour, they become what's called an elder. It's makeover time. They come out of the ocean into estuaries where rivers meet the sea and they put on a bit of growth spurt and start to colour up into browns and greeny yellows. But the journey is not over. And that isn't the last makeover either. For those ones that do swim upriver, we know that they'll travel hundreds of kilometres inland. After they've spent a few years in freshwater and they feed and grow, they'll change from what we call a yellow eel into a silver eel. Seriously, another day, another makeover for the short fin eel. So their eyes become bigger. So they can see in the depth of the ocean. And they develop this really distinct counter shading. So the top side becomes dark and the belly becomes silver. This is a sort of oceanic camouflage. Dark shadow from above, light through the water from below. So those changes start to occur as they begin that downstream migration in freshwater habitats. So they don't become fully mature until they've made it into the ocean. It also explains why Pliny and Aristotle and Freud couldn't find any eel sexual parts in their dissections. They were looking at juveniles. Literally, the salt water fans the flames of the final stage of puberty, triggering changes that make the eel finally all grown up. In fact, adulthood hits so hard that the digestive organs shrink, the anus gets smaller, all because the gonads, the sexual parts, get really big and take up all the space. And in some cases, this last burst of maturity comes quite late. So we've aged some of these eels using the otoliths, which is an ear bone, and these otoliths, they'll lay down an annual growth band, like a tree lays down an annual growth band. And we can count those rings and get an estimate of the age. And some of the eels that Wayne and the squad have been able to age have been at 30 to 40 years old. That means some of these eels were probably alive around the time that Czechoslovakia became the Czech Republic. Insane. But they don't all live that long. It's a sliding scale depending on the conditions that the eel finds itself in. So if conditions aren't right in a particular year or a series of years, then they do have the ability to wait it out until those conditions arise. And it's normally in the downstream migration that the eels are harvested. Looking for Anne. 
which I sort of wish I had known before I ordered eel at the Japanese restaurant. It could almost be my age. Shit. Can I please have the eel? Do you know where the eel's from? Uh, Taiwan, is it? Yeah. That the eel had a fair few carbon miles on it isn't actually unusual, according to John Wyatt Greenlee. They sometimes get caught on one continent and killed, then processed on another continent and then sold on another. So, the 30-year-old eel, not the one I just ordered, obviously, but the one that's just hit the saltwater of Victoria, avoiding getting caught in creeks, has just had a huge hormone burst, realised it's got gonads, it's hungry, and it's on a mission to swim all the way to the South Pacific to find someone to love, to lose its virginity, and die. But wait, do we even know how they find each other? It's another one of those unknowns about eels, but we think that one of the keys is they're able to use the Earth's magnetic field to navigate to near where they need to go. And potentially other factors too, like salinity and temperature gradients might also play a role in guiding them to those spawning grounds. Like so many things, this aspect of eel existence is a mystery. Though Wayne and the eel squad are trying to find out by putting tags on eels. And before you wonder, like I did, how to put a collar on an eel so it wouldn't just slip right off the back of it, they knock out the eels and surgically implant the trackers. Probably the best bit of data that we got was from a tag that ended up on a, a small island. It was Lizard Island in Queensland, you know, a cool 3,300 kilometres from Tayrak in Victoria, if the eel could drive a car. A person was walking along the beach and he found the tag and were able to get the data off it. And what that showed is that that particular eel had migrated almost 3,000 kilometres. What it also showed is that there was a sudden temperature spike up to about 37 degrees, which tells us that that eel ended up inside the belly of a marine mammal, probably a whale. It what? It got all the way from see-through baby eel, travelled thousands of kilometres, survived inland Australia's heavily altered waterways, decided it was time, went out to sea, swam 3,000 kilometres and then got eaten by a whale, which then shat out the transmitter onto a beach on Lizard Island. You couldn't make it up. I mean, if you tried to make up an animal like the eel, with the life cycle of the eel, you'd be pretty hard pushed too. Here's Tyson Lovett Murray. But have you ever seen them do that thing where they come up on land and go over dry? Yeah. Yeah, so I'd heard uncles talk about that. I took my two nephews out a few months ago and we were looking for eels and we had the torch. We were in the water, but then we put the torch up on the bank and, yeah, there was an eel out and he was having a crack at something on the bank. He was fully out of the water and once the torch had hit him, he turned around and then and just shot off through the lake. It was really cool to see. Their capillaries are really close to their skin, so they can take in a percentage of oxygen through their skin. So that helps them sort of move across land as well. I don't think it's a great amount, but yeah, it's pretty cool. I've seen them grab birds as well, like off banks. Um, there's, there's videos online of them grabbing like baby ducks from underneath and stuff like that as well. We're back at Budgebeam Cultural Centre, where Brayden is entertaining us all by naming the eels in the display tank. And I've bailed up Erin Rose to get the truth. Uh, okay, okay, I've got to ask though, cheeky question. Do you like eating the eel? No, no, I don't eat it. I've tried it once before and... 
like meat sometimes grosses me out anyway. I'm not a big fan of it. I'm sure it tastes good, I just actually can't bring myself to eating it. I understand that. Not only is there the conservation status to think about, but I'm actually not the most adventurous of eaters, especially when it comes to seafood. But I've ordered and paid for eel at a really nice Japanese place. And when they put the plate down, it's two lovely little rice balls topped up with a slice of grilled eel on each, presented like a piece of art. Okay, moment of truth has arrived. Let's do this. Mm. It actually tastes like chicken. It tastes like chicken. Of course it does. What the Duck is an ABC Science production. I'm Ann Jones, and this program is produced by Patria Ladgrove and made on the lands of the Gunujimara, Ghana, and Wadawurrung people. Eel lies in an alley. Them five over there, they break up and get back together, but we call them the eel ghouls. You can see I've, I've practiced this before. <laughs> this guy was the first guy to touch the moon. His name's Eel Armstrong. <laughs>